He had found her possessive at one stage of his life, and had been forced to take his liberty against her wishes. But he was deeply moved when on her deathbed, she told him she could remember no harsh word against her on his lips. In Augustine's mind, she almost takes on the qualities and epithets of Mother Church. This is a quote I just shared from Henry Chadwick in his biography of St. Augustine, titled Augustine of Hippo, A Life. And that excerpt I shared was about the um, uh, relationship uh, between Augustine and his mother Monica, and uh, the, his moments he spent uh, with Monica uh, in her in her last moments uh, in this earthly life before her death. Uh, today, this is Drew speaking, and uh, today is kind of a uh, last minute episode of Doth Pro Two protest too much doth protest too much is a podcast on reformation uh theology and history and uh if you listen to us through apple podcasts or spotify or whatever streaming platform you're using and it allows you to give us a rating uh and, and or a review please do so we we always appreciate feedback uh, but as i was saying this is kind of a last minute episode i decided to do I noticed that this week, um, what well, was uh, kind of a special week for me because on our liturgical calendar, uh, this week included the feast days of both. Well, I'll, I'll go through each one for Saint, uh, included a feast day for Saint Athanasius uh, on May second, uh, which was Tuesday of this week uh, that we're recording. And uh, if if listeners remember back to our theologians series that we did with uh, co-hosts James and Charlie the th uh, and myself, the three of us went through our list of our top five favorite theologians. And on my top five uh, favorite list, uh, St. Athanasius was on there. Um, and also, another feast day this week is May 4th, the day that this uh, episode is being published. I'm actually recording it on May 3rd. But May 4th is the feast day for St. Monica, who is the mother of another person from my top five list, St. Augustine. Uh, that's right. Uh, I got two early church uh, pre-reformational people on my top five favorite theologians list, Athanasius and Augustine. I actually was thinking of doing an episode of Athanasius this week. I got a hold of James uh, earlier this week uh, to see if he wanted to do a last-minute episode on Athanasius, uh, but he uh, was tied up with a clergy conference with his diocese, so um, so we couldn't, we weren't able to do it. But uh, so uh, very last minute, I decided to do this episode on Monica, and um, and it's really on Monica and Augustine because you can't really talk about both, or sorry, you can't really talk about one without talking about the other, uh, and you can't really do justice to the story of one without a mention of the other. And so both will be the focus of today's uh, podcast. And uh, I don't know what, there's some famous quote, and I don't know who said it, that said, behind every good man, there's a good woman or something like that. I think in the case of St. Augustine, you could say his mother had a big influence on him. And so... Um, I want to first mention, uh, I'm think I, I 
couldn't help but think back to a uh, movie called Augustine, Son of Her Tears. Uh, the, the title's called Augustine. The subtitle is called Son of Her Tears. And it was actually a uh, French film. Uh, I'm going to fact check myself on that. I'm going to Google it real quick. Son of Her Tears. Okay. Augustine's Son of Her Tears. It is an Algerian movie. Uh, but the it was it's dubbed in english and that's how i saw it but anyways i showed this movie and it's why this is why i got confused to thinking thinking it was a french movie uh i'll just read the synopsis from imdb a uh, filmmaker from paris hedy returns to his native algeria to create a documentary about saint augustine the philosopher and theologian who shaped western thought in parallel stories, the two men struggle with their beliefs on love, family, truth, and God. So yes, um, <laughs> that's bringing it back for me, so I'm able to talk about it a little bit more. So this movie is about a guy making a movie on St. Augustine. Or sorry, this movie is a movie about a guy making a documentary on St. Augustine. And uh, with the parallel stories, indeed, this movie flashbacks or does a flashback i don't know flashbacks if that's a verb but it goes back and forth i guess juxtaposes um or, well i guess people are paralleling goes back and forth between this modern day story of himself um this this filmmaker this this modern guy today who has impregnated his girlfriend and his story the the, the way his story is shown in the film is is his girlfriend uh, who is now carrying his child, carrying their child, sorry, uh, really wants him to get serious about, first off, their relationship, uh, looking at marriage. She wants him to get serious uh, about now being the father of their upcoming child. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's an event that happens in this guy's life that make, that forces him to, to to face uh, a, a new a new reality in his life and and to face these what what is it what are these deeper beliefs that he holds what what are his values when it comes to love family truth and God and so it, it has a flashback from that uh, to to the story of Saint Augustine um, they have you know it's it's a uh, and, and it's a movie with actors playing Augustine and Monica, as well as, you know, Ambrose and, and other people in, in the, in the story of St. Augustine back, uh, which goes back 1600 years. And so, um, it, it's, uh, the biography of a, of a true story, um, regarding St. Augustine, uh, as well as this, like, uh, this later scenario of this modern filmmaker. But anyway, it's called St. Augustine's Son of Her Tears, and I showed this movie to, to back, this is back a couple years ago when I was teaching, uh, before I was at St. Michael's, uh, where the, the church I'm the pastor of. This is back at an Episcopal High School, uh, in that, where I, um, taught religion courses where I served as the chaplain and I, I showed this movie Augustine's Son of Her Tears to a high school class uh, because it kind of showed, you know, kind of a, you know, everyday uh, or, you know, uh, story that happens, a, lot, a normal people story, um, you know, uh, relationships, pregnancy, uh, 
this kind of thing. Uh, things that are probably in a lot of the shows that they watch on their own. Um, and, uh, it tied it into the story of Augustine and the quest for truth. Uh, and, and, um, and so, uh, and they, they seem to be received, uh, I think, um, you know, I remember, uh, I assigned the students, you know, they had to write a certain, you know, reflection or something, you know, there, there was, there was something uh, tied to the, the movie and they couldn't just watch it and not pay or not pay attention and just blow it off. So, you know, uh, for, for people who have <clears throat> taught, um, non-adults, uh, who are listening, they can relate. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, a it was an overall good movie and I recommend it again. It's called Augustine's Son of Her Tears. Uh, and that movie is basically, a being in part a biography of Augustine, it very much touches on a lot of the things that Augustine's famous writing called the Confessions touches on, and the Confessions is 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 of course a uh, basically and very much an autobiography, but it's really a deep dive, a deep dive into his own psyche. It's his own deep dive into his own soul, um, basically. Uh, and I'll share a quote. Um, from the, the confessions that basically um, can maybe serve as a good setup for what we're about to get into next. Um, this is from book four, I guess you could call it like a chapter four of the confessions. Um, this is Augustine writing about his years uh, as kind of a young man, young adult. He says, throughout those nine years, from my 19th to my 28th year, I and others like me were seduced and seducers, deceived ourselves and deceivers of others amid a welter of desires, publicly through the arts reputed, publicly through the arts reputed liberal and secretly under the false name of religion. In the one we are were arrogant and in the other superstitious and in both futile. Under the auspices of the former we pursued trumpery popular acclaim theatrical plaudits, song competitions and the contest of wreaths. We watched trashy shows and indulged our intemperate lusts. Through the latter, we sought to be purged of these defilements by providing food for the so-called elect or saints in the hope that they would turn the food into angels and gods for us from the workshops of their bellies to the agents of our liberation. These ends I pursued, these things I did, in the company of friends who through me and with me were alike deceived. Let the haughty laugh at me. Let them laugh who have never yet been flat on their faces, felled for their own good by you, my God. But let me confess my disgraceful deeds to you, and in confessing, praise you. So this was very much um, a work of just releasing, becoming, you know, opening his heart up to God, knowing that God, as the famous Anglican collect would say, uh, the collect for purity, uh, God from whom all our desires are known to, and from whom no secrets are hid. And Augustine was, was opening up about all these desires, of, especially of his past, and all these things that some may want to keep a secret out of shame, uh, but he opened them up and that's why the work is called the confessions and uh, it's a it's a good work and I'll speak a little bit more about it in, in shortly so Saint Augustine um, 
is uh, an important person in the history of Christianity, and he lived from approximately 354 to 430 AD. His thought has shaped Christianity, particularly Christianity in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants alike uh, both look look to him greatly um, in in kind of different ways. It's interesting, and we've touched a little bit on that in past episodes, so I won't really go through all that here. But Augustine wrote many works, and his two but his two most notable works are the Confessions and the City of God. Um, the Confessions was an autobiography. And it was, in fact, uh, it's said to be the world's first autobiography, and that very well could be the case. I'm thinking I'm not a I'm not a uh, a classic scholar or a classicist, as they're called. So I don't um, <clears throat> I'm not as familiar. Perhaps maybe there's something from ancient Greece or Rome that predates the Confessions that could definitely. Uh, constitute or, or be defined as an autobiography, uh, if there is one, I'm not aware of one off the top of my head at least. Uh, but it is often considered the world's um, first uh, autobiography. Uh, and here's an excerpt from it. Um, I just shared one excerpt of it, from the, but this quote I'm going to share from it now may um, may just point, may just uh, be a better uh, synopsis, I guess you could you could say, of what the book is about. Now I want to call to mind the foul deeds I committed, those sins of the flesh that corrupted my soul, not in order to love them, but to love you, my God. Out of love for loving you, I do this, recalling my most wicked ways and thinking over the past with bitterness, so that you may grow ever sweeter to me. For you are a sweetness that deceives not, a sweetness blissful and serene. Augustine, and, and I've pointed this out many times, as a theologian, he noticed something that is so true. We cannot know the immensity, the immeasurableness of God's grace without knowing the fallenness of ourselves and how that's manifested in our lives. Um, you really need to, you can't appreciate grace until we recognize that. Um, and so Augustine, so, so what is the confessions about? Obviously we just, you know, said it's basically, uh, Augustine, um, really sharing, uh, and writing down, um, basically all his past deeds uh the the state of the the past state of his soul uh his past confusion um how he was misled in his past by these different philosophies he played around with uh, in his intellectual pursuits um augustine is a saint um i can I will say personally relate to, uh, he was a thinker for one. Uh, he was a convert. I'm not really a Christian convert. I was raised a Christian and I was baptized in the faith as an infant. And, uh, I was, uh, I've been a Christian since, since then, but I came to faith, um, 
I came back to faith, sorry, uh, after kind of a brief time in my uh, early teens, late 20s, which is kind of a typical time for a lot of people to, you know, because to fall away being conscious about your faith or to fall away from like going to church. Because if you, you might have been raised going to church and you, you, you had to go because your family went. And then when you, as you gained some independence, you didn't really go or see the, the use for, you know. It happens for a lot of people. Thankfully for me, I, uh, I came, I came, I came back out of that and back to the Christian faith and back to being finding home in the church. Uh, but a lot of people, younger people, don't. Um, so uh, it's it's kind of my that aspect of my story, I guess, is kind of similar to Gustin's story. But um, he, he, but he didn't become a Christian at all until until an adult. Um, so there was never a lapse for him. He just, he just wasn't raised a Christian to begin with. However, he was raised by a Christian. Okay. So what's that about? Well, Monica, his mother, um, and again, I can't recommend that movie enough. Augustine, son of her tears, because, uh, that movie is mainly about the relationship between Augustine and his mother. And you'll get a lot of that in the confessions as well. Um, and, you know, because throughout Augustine's journey, I mean, throughout this man's journey in life, throughout his pers- his intellectual pursuits, um, he he often brought his mother to tears. <laughs> he often, uh, I guess, drove her crazy uh, because she was a, uh, a Christian woman, kind of, you know, classic pious Christian woman. That, I mean, <laughs> if, if we want to to have that image for her, uh, very gentle, very prayerful. Um, and, uh, her husband was not, um, her husband, uh, was, was brutish, uh, very carnal, uh, uninvolved with, uh, the, very uninvolved with the life of his son. Uh, and if you see that movie, Son of Her Tears, it portrays him as, uh, abusive, uh, we don't have a record on if exactly if he was abusive or in what kind of way, um, kind of tradition says that he was very insult, like he would, he would throw insults at, um, at Monica. And so, but, uh, and he was, and he was pagan, like, like a lot of people were still in, you know, the, the 300s and 400s, uh, in the Roman empire. He, he was, he was pagan, but married to a Christian and, and, uh, didn't, uh, did not relate to his wife's faith at all. Um, and so, uh, Augustine, um, was, you know, raised, uh, <laughs> we would say in kind of a mixed, mixed parents, pagan father, Christian mother. And, um, you know, but she never gave up, uh, praying for him. She wanted him to find what she had found. And, she never gave up believing that even uh, as saddened, even if she was saddened by her son's arrogance, um, his kind of wilder days of womanizing, some of that was alluded to in the quote I shared a little bit ago, uh, as intellectual pursuits and all these kind of uh, great philosophies, or and but a lot of them were pagan and, and not, um, not, a, not the Christian worldview. Uh, I mean, he was a very learned man. He was intellectual and he, he, he was a, I know, he studied Plato a lot. I'll share some things about Plato's influence. Um, 
on Augustine. So, but but through all this, you know, through his pursuits, through his arrogance, through his his wild days, through his more youthful days, his younger younger days, she was she was you know uh, saddened by it. His mother, his mother was fearful, uh, uh, but she never stopped believing that God had given her son gifts, and He had given this young man gifts, and that overall He had a plan for Augustine. And so while Augustine remained uh, unconvinced for so long about this Christian faith that his mother followed, he ultimately was convinced of its truth. Um, I'll share a little bit of the reflection I had on that as I shared in, um, in, in how I preached about it today in, in our service. Uh, you know, there was someone behind this change of heart that he had. God, yes. Um, it's always God who turns the heart. In fact, if if you were to look at the the reading, the lectionary readings appointed for Monica's feast day, uh, the gospel passage is about Jesus uh, raising the widow's son, the widow from Nain, and uh, that passage about Jesus raising someone who's dead. A dead person cannot raise themselves they cannot move they cannot do anything uh they're dead but jesus nevertheless did it all by his power and his power alone and he also did it as he saw the sorrow of this boy's mother uh we can automatically i think see the parallel between what happened here with Jesus and the widow's son, him raising her, him comforting her, listening to her in her sorrow. And the same thing that happened with Augustine, who was spiritually dead or dead to sin. But his mother, um, her tears, as the movie says, her tears, her sorrow, God was listening. And God directed uh, Augustine back to himself. And this emphasis, Augustine would later have this emphasis, because he truly felt that in his life. He would later have this emphasis that it is God alone who turns the heart. And it is God alone who can work the will, our wills for his own good. And we'll get, that's just a little sneak peek of what we'll come to a little bit shortly. Um, so it's always God who turns the heart, but also his mother who prayed for him. And his mother, Augustine's mother, showed him patience, love, and understanding. And in part, yes, it was because she was his mother. But this was a love he never experienced from his father, who we talked about a bit ago. And, you know, the contrast between his mother, Monica, and his father. Augustine later came to see what, what was underlying this difference between the two, his two parents, was that one of them, his mother, was moved by something. She was animated by something, someone who her life had been tied to, that being Christ Jesus. You know, and as I relate, while there was never a time in my life where I didn't believe in God, there were definitely times in my life where 
I paid God no mind. You know, and there were times in my own life where I could see why other people I knew in my life had doubts about God and Christianity. Um, you know, I didn't grow up wanting to be a minister. Uh, if you would have told me that when I was a senior in high school, that I was going to be a, an ordained minister, I was going to be an Episcopal priest, I was going to be serving, you know, I would have said that was crazy. I would have been very surprised. So like Augustine, I remember kind of going my own way in life, not realizing uh, that God uh, God was there or that God is there. And so, uh, so Augustine came to faith and um, he went on to be, as I said, a... Uh, Considered one of the great Christian thinkers, I guess one of the great Christian intellectuals, but one of the great saints, uh, one of the great theologians, doctors of the church. And I think we can really see his importance through several ways. Um, I talked about his great works, the Confessions and the City of God. Well, I didn't really get into the City of God, but um, it's a great work. Um, for time's sake, I'm not going to get into it here. But let's get into... Why Augustine was um, basically he Augustine was the in many ways the captain at the, the the one at the helm of the ship of the church, in not literally. I mean, he wasn't like ever the head. I mean, first off, Christ is the head of the church. We're a Protestant show, but um, Augustine was never a pope or like a bishop of Rome or something. But he was a bishop, um, uh, bishop of Hippo, but. Uh, but anyways, he, he was um, a well-respected thinker in the church who, who um, was, played a huge part in controversies, big controversies, several of them, uh, that the church went through during the time of his life. One was the Donatist controversy. Um, <clears throat> let's think to ourselves, what happened to many Christians before Constantine, right? They were persecuted. But what do you think Christians could could do to avoid being persecuted? They could recant, and some did, many did. Remember, this is a little bit before Augustine now. We're talking Christianity from the time of Emperor Nero, kind of in the 60s, 70s, 80s, up, uh, up through when the Roman Empire under Constantine made it legal to be a Christian did recant their faith. And of course, this made some other Christians who didn't recant, uh, who stayed loyal to their faith, it, it understandably made them very upset. <clears throat> and so, within time, there's a group known as the Donatists. And this group that, uh, this group, this was a group of Christians who believed that the church should be comprised solely of saints, not sinners. That the church needs to be pure. It needs to be pure and, and consist only of loyal Christians, not those who have backslid or have gone astray, right? <clears throat> it should just be people who have been loyal. This is a group of rigorous. They and and first off, that that in itself kind of flies in the face of uh, the message of grace we get so often in the gospels and in the New Testament. And in Jesus' ministry, and really his mission to recover the lost sheep of Israel, um, and really just to recover lost sheep. And in the parables, he tells, like, the prodigal son, the parable of the lost sheep, uh, the lost coin. It's, 
you know, God rejoices in reuniting and bringing back, right, uh, those who have gone astray. Now look at Augustine's story. His own story is that he was someone who experienced that very same grace, because he was someone that had been astray. And so you can see where once he comes into the picture, you can you can maybe you you without even saying we'll get into it, but you can maybe predict what his response to this group of people, this rigorous group called the Donatists, is going to be. And the Donatists went even farther to believe that any sacraments that were administered by traitors uh, or sinners, you know, people who had come back to the faith and maybe become priests, were any sacraments that were administered by these were wholly invalid. Holy as in W-H-O-L-L-Y. <laughs> they were invalid. So if your priest or bishop was unfaithful, you know, any ordination they do, any baptism they do, any communion they do, it's invalid, right? So uh, Augustine, he's like, uh, traitors can be brought back to the church. Baptisms are still valid, even if the priest later became a traitor, or the, in the priest's past he had been a traitor to the faith, because sacraments, their efficacy depends on Christ. Their sacraments are valid because they are, they're dependent on Christ. They come from the power of Christ, not the power of the bishop or the power of the priest ministering them. Um, it's completely on Christ, Right. So Augustine strongly opposed the Donatists. He argued that traitors could be brought back into the church through repentance. He argued that the sacraments depend on Christ for their validity, not on how good or bad the minister is. Augustine reminded them that until Jesus comes back, Jesus told us that the church would consist of wheat and weeds, that, you know, saints and sinners. So that was the first controversy Augustine responded to, that the uh, Donatists. Then there's another controversy called the Pelagian controversy. And it goes back to this guy named Pelagius. Pelagius was a monk from Britain who lived around the time of Augustine. Uh, so think of the saying, just, just kind of an exercise here. Think of the saying, nobody's perfect, right? Have you ever used that before? Um, I've used that before. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I've used that as an excuse to kind of to cover up my own uh, mistakes, right? Uh, it kind of lessens the load of, you know, off my back. I don't have to feel as accountable for, for what I did wrong. If I just say, well, nobody's perfect. It's okay. You know, nobody's perfect. Well, this is what, and we can understand it perhaps, Pelagius, this British monk, was starting, and he lived around the time of Augustine. So he lives in the 300s, 400s. He was starting to see Christians kind of use this. When Christians would mess up once in a while. Christians would sin, right? Because sin is bad and Christianity preaches against sin. So he was disturbed by people um, using the fact that nobody is perfect as an excuse for not living a Christian life perfectly. For people using like, well, I'm not God, I'm frail. I, from my own frailties and weaknesses, um, sin is real. I'm a sinful person people using this as an excuse. And so he com Pelagius complained that many people in the church were not setting high standards for themselves. 
And this led Pelagius to reject uh, the belief in original sin. This is the doctrine or the teaching, the, the Christian teaching that since the fall, since the fall of humanity with Adam and Eve, that all human being, beings are stained by sin. Uh, it's, you know, we're spiritually dead. Our hearts, our minds, and our wills have been corrupted, uh, leaving us unable to seek after God, leaving us unable to please God, at least on our own. And so Pelagius believed that we all have the power within ourselves, and we have the will within ourselves. Um, we do not need grace. And to be fair to Pelagius, Pelagius doesn't wipe God completely out of the picture. He would say, God gave us this ability. God gave us this willpower to live holy lives. So we just need to do it. Um, you know, moral perfection, moral perfection is attainable in this life. You just got to properly use, you got to put forth effort. You got to properly discipline yourselves. God gave you this ability and willpower. Now, some of our listeners uh, are probably thinking, wait a minute, I've heard this before. I've heard this in church. Yeah. And in our other episodes have talked about Pelagianism quite a bit. You probably heard this in church or heard something that kind of sounds similar because guess what? I believe, and I think some of our folks who've been on Doth Protest would agree, and I think James, he's not with us, but I can speak for him, I think that Pelagianism is the most prevalent heresy, that is, the most prevalent false teaching in the church today. And I think it's very easy in our human nature, because in our world we have to have accountability, and in our world we do have to weigh merits to an extent. It's so easy in our world. Um uh, it's so easy for a Christian to slip into Pelagianism. I find myself slipping into it sometimes, but it is a false teaching because it says that Jesus is not really a savior or a redeemer, but an example to teach us how to live. And we see a lot of that type of, um, limited view of Jesus, or I guess reduction, reductionist view of Jesus as a moral exemplar. Uh, you, you do see a lot of it in, um, uh, churches and you do see it in, I want to say the, you know, mainline Protestant churches. Um, while, you know, some churches might air like maybe in a very super conservative or very evangelical churches might err on the side of never talking about the example Jesus sets for us at all that we need to go live, you know, the mainline churches will be a lot of them, a lot of, in a lot of the more liberal ones. And when I say mainline Protestant, I mean, um, some of the more historic denominations like Presbyterian, Episcopal, some Lutherans like the ELCA, uh, and some Methodists uh, who who have gone in, in what are sometimes called more progressive or liberal directions that don't want to have too much emphasis on doctrine um, and dogma and, um, you know, things like hell and sin, they don't see as, um, you know, they, they might mean something very different for them. Hell might not, might not even be a real thing for them. It might be kind of a cruel doctrine of a bygone age. And sin might, they, they see the overemphasis, perhaps, that fundamentalists put on sin 
and they may jump to the other extreme and and never want to talk about or admit sin at all. Uh, but when we do that, when we when we ignore uh, sin, we also the the fact of it in our lives, the fact that we do it, the fact that we need to confess it. We also then forget that we need saving from from it, and that we need a savior at all. And so then Jesus becomes an example for us because we need to go do good in the world. And so he's just our example, you know, and, um, that's just, that's a, not a full understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, he does set an example. Um, but if you don't come to know him as your savior, as your redeemer, and importantly, as your friend, um, and as your brother, which all involves a relationship with him, um, and, and knowing how you are tied to him in that, um, that if you don't have any of that, you, you will not be able to see the, even the value of him as an example for your life any more than any other good, noble person. So, um, <clears throat> so how did Augustine respond to Pelagius? How did he respond to this guy who was saying that, you know, God gave us this ability and willpower to, to live holy lives? Well, he said... Um, that really no one can come to God or please God apart from divine grace. So, uh, think about Augustine's life. Um, he went in every single direction and explored every single avenue. He looked for meaning. He looked for purpose in all sorts of different areas. And finally, he came to God. And as he experienced it and felt it, it was not him doing that. God was the one drawing him to himself. God was the one who turned his heart. So Augustine says, only by grace can we be saved. He believes grace is a free gift offered by Christ. We cannot, our, cannot save ourselves. Christ saves us. And so... um you may notice there's a similarity between how he responded to this controversy and how Augustine responded to the Donatist controversy. Both groups leave grace out. Both do not tolerate um, immorality. They, they both don't tolerate uh, a lapse in, in good living. And you'll also notice that the Pharisees didn't tolerate that kind of thing either. And the people that Paul uh, preached against in letters like Galatians, especially, were legalists who also um, didn't tolerate people not checking all the boxes and living up to the ideal of what they were supposed to be as believers in God and as Christians. So, uh, you know, we're kind of see a running theme between, um, the, the, uh, the emphasis on righteousness that is often so, so connected to a self-righteousness uh that 
Jesus and Paul and Augustine were, were very much against. But anyways, I feel like I'm preaching now. But anyways, um, so this was important. Uh, these were this is why Augustine is really the important figure that figure that he is. Um, but Augustine was heavily influenced by Plato, and I, I highly recommend. Um, <clears throat> that's the thing, you know. Sometimes, sometimes Christians don't like to. Uh, you know, there some you know, there's a lot of Christians that don't know philosophy and they don't know classical philosophy too well, and um, and uh, you know that's not that there's this kind of a ignorant unless someone actually goes and studies philosophy in college. You know, a lot of people don't know a lot of that classic stuff. The you know this Plato and 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 Aristotle and people like that, um, and some. Some Christians don't like the idea of philosophy's influence on Christianity, or, or at least philosophy's influence on certain Christian thinkers, because that that may strike as like a uh, that might come off as like some kind of foreign element creeping into Christianity and distorting it, or something like that. <clears throat> but I do think the way Augustine uh, took some of the framework of thinking from Plato, I guess you could say. Uh, was interesting, and uh, as as most theologians who dabbled into philosophy, everyone from Aquinas to the reformers, have have basically come to is that look, you know, reason. Even though Aquinas and the reformers had very different, one had a very high view of reason, the others had low view of reason. But you know, reason. There's nothing wrong with using our reason and our logic. These are things God bless us with, but they always should be subject to uh, service to Him rather than service to ourselves. And so Augustine, uh, you know, was, took some of the, was informed by and, and took, you know, perhaps the insights of the, the reason from, of Plato, who was a, you know, non-Christian, pre-Christian philosopher and a Gentile and a pagan, you know. Um, and if anyone wants to, Read this more in depth. I uh, point. I will point you back to the book by Henry Chadwick, um, the biography of him by Henry Chadwick, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But Augustine, um, uh, basically, the the Platonism uh, of Augustine's time, which by Augustine's time it was called, uh, uh, it was kind of developed into something called Neoplatonism really helped him, helped lead him to Christianity. Um, it, you know, God ultimately did it. And God, and remember, Scripture speaks of God as using, God uses all things. He works all things. If we kind of want to call the, the, those things bad, if we want to call those things good, he works all things for his purposes. And so, um, you know, Augustine came back to the faith partly, you know, it was ultimately God, but he, but he came to faith you know, his mother was praying for him um he maintained a relationship with his mother and so his mother always had an influence on him and also the works of plato a non-christian thinker helped this as well and this is because augustine found that the platonists spoke of a logos in which all things were brought into being through logos is a greek concept it um if you were to read the Gospel of John, the first chapter, and that's that famous chapter, that prologue, um, 
in the beginning of the what was the word, the word was flesh. Or sorry, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And yes, the word became flesh. Um, that's very true as well. But uh, that chapter, that if you were to read that in the original Greek, in the you know the Gospel of John was originally written in Greek. This term logos is used for the word, and this Greek word logos goes back before the Gospel of John. It's and it's basically this idea. It's this it's this principle. Basically, when we look at the cosmos, we look at uni- the universe, we look at we look at all that exists, all that is. It's basically everything that is came into being all through something. The the logos is like this this principle of this one thing of which all things come through. You know, Christians obviously and the Jews and Christians we believe in the creator. God is the creator, created things out of nothing, and he brought all things into being. And by the time the Gospel of John is written, Christians use this concept, and they use this word logos, this principle of something in which all things are brought into being through. That's Jesus. Everything comes through Jesus. Everything that we know of comes into being through Jesus. So, um, heavy concept. Early Christians employed it. So uh, Augustine saw how the Christians spoke of this and um, was drawn to reading the Gospels because of it. Augustine um, also saw in the message of the Christians that truth is ultimately to be found, um, is found as something incorporeal. That is, not of matter beyond this world. And this is the great paradox of Christians, though, because Christians vary. I mean, most of the Bible, it's it's a variety of writings in the Bible. We have poetry, we have wisdom literature, we have apocalyptic literature, we have all genres. But most of it is what we'd call historical writings. Now, whether you want to judge how much of it is actually took place in history that that's a topic for another conversation but it's written as as things that purported to take place in history so the bible is a historical writing at least a lot of the writings of it books like samuel and kings are his history uh the book of acts in the new testament is history the gospels sort of but they're more like ancient biography but it's still it's all still narratives about things that took place at a point in time, right? It's not. I mean, books like Proverbs are like, you know, wisdom. Uh, books like like the Psalms, like like hymns, even though they even kind of tell stories too. But but a lot of the Bible is narrative about things that have taken place. Um, and so, um, Christians do have this idea of. You know, <clears throat> unlike some other religions where everything's just purely spiritual and nothing, you know, Christians believe that God has acted in this world and they write accounts of those events. God has manifested himself and incarnated himself in this world as a person, Jesus. And that person walked, Jesus walked this earth, had a life on this earth, had a mission on this earth. So things uh, 
take place in the world of matter in Christianity, but also truth ultimately transcends though and goes beyond this world as well. Because God, unlike think this world and all the things of this world which come and go, and all the things of the and all this world which is which is passing away, um, God is eternal because He's also transcendent and He exists eternally outside space. And he operates outside of space and time, even though He operates within space and time as well. You know, I guess we're getting to deep metaphysical stuff, but that all is to say that um, uh, he saw the parallel between Christians on one hand and Augustine saw on the other hand with Plate, the Platonists as well, that Platonists and Christians both say, have this idea that this world is not our true home. But Christianity helped him move beyond Platonism. Christianity had a, a different idea than Platonists about how we get to our true home. The Platonists following the classic line from Socrates and Plato and a lot of the ancient Greek philosophers would say, we get to our true home, we recognize the deepest truth through our reason, right? Um, but Augustine saw it, no, we get to our true home through Jesus Christ, who's the Logos that became flesh. So Greek and Roman philosophers like Plato taught a message of mastering the passions. Uh, think of the uh, chariot analogy. Um, if you haven't heard it, Plato had this idea. Uh, both the, the, the ideal human soul works this way. We have an our soul has three parts. We have a rational part that can reason. We have an appetitive part that needs to be fed. Right, right. He would say that's a part of the soul. We would say that's our body. That's not our soul. But he would say it's part of the soul. And he would say the third part, which is um, kind of our spirited part of the soul, which, which, uh, you know, things like um, uh, pride and and um, you know, having team spirit. And having um, courage and passion, right? That's part of the spirited part. Um, but the two, and I know this is just an audio recording and it works better when I just draw it out on a board, but the two horses, there's a chariot analogy where one horse is the appetite, one horse is the passionate part or the spirited part. Our appetites can, can drive us wayward, right? Our passions can drive us wayward. But if you have a good chariot driver who uses his reason, it'll keep those two horses on the path they need to be. Because passions are good and appetites good, but they just need to be put in, put in check, right? So that analogy Plato uses to describe the, per, the ideal human soul, that reason guides, we have these three parts of us, but reason should guide those two lower parts. Same with the perfect city in Plato's idea, that the, the rulers will be a rational, he, Plato would say a rational king. He was against the idea of democracy, which Greece is all about. He wanted a rational king to be in charge over the, the military class, which was the passionate ones, the courageous ones. 
and the appetitive class, which he would say were like the, the merchants, the farmers, stuff like that, making sure material needs are met. <clears throat> but, um, man, and that's basically the Republic of Plato. But uh, Augustine, however, says, well, that might all sound good, but it's not true. He says, we cannot master our passions <clears throat> on our own. We need God or Jesus. And, we, you know, we think back on this quote, this one of Augustine's most famous quotes, our hearts are truly restless until we find rest in thee, O God. Right? And that's his story. His story of wild, uh, his, his wild uh, ex escapades of his youth. Um and him trying to find value and meaning and truth and all these different, all these different paths. And he, and he was still restless the whole time. He felt empty and he finally found rest and he finally found nourishment in God. God is revealed in Jesus Christ and he became a Christian. Amy believed our hearts are made for God. And so, um, you know, and that, I, as I said, I shared a little bit about my own story, uh, you know, and, um, I remember often going my own way, not really realizing, um, uh, that God's love for me was bigger than any of the love I tried to get in other places. Some of them, frankly, foolish places to look. Uh, so when I look back you know, in my own life, I believe that there were also people praying for me. And if I can leave our listeners with any message, there are people praying for you too. And I bet you'd be surprised to know how many people there are out there praying for you. And I bet you would, you would even be more surprising, really infinitely surprising, if you were able to visualize, which you can't, or if you were to be able to fully comprehend, which you're not able to, the love that God has for you. Augustine couldn't visualize it or comprehend it, but he knew it. He, he, he came to know it and to know of God's immeasurable love and God's immeasurable grace. Um, that because he could not even comprehend the amount of love and grace, the infinite amount that comes from God, he was, he just became so grounded and anchored and in this God that loved him beyond anything that he could imagine and this God that loved him beyond any arrogant thing he had ever done. And so, um, just want to leave with, on that note, uh, it's, a, it's an inspiring story. It's kind of the classic, you know, can we see this over and over again in some of the, you know, stories of of the, the great Christian uh, leaders of our over the ages who have uh, come there by conversion? Um, people like C.S. Lewis, uh, people like John Newton. The list could just go on. And so, I just wanted to share that story about Augustine on this day. And that it was always Monica who, you know, recognized that her son was a man of extraordinary 
intellectual gifts, um, a brilliant thinker, a natural leader, uh, and she had, you know, she, she always had strong ambitions, or she had high hopes for him. Um, but as she herself grew deeper in her own faith, she prayed before anything else, before success, before a successful career for her son. She prayed ultimately that he would just come to know God and that God loved him. And God did. And God loves you as well. Well, uh, on that note, I'll go ahead and close and uh, look forward to our listeners tuning in again. God bless.